She promises, she promises the Lord, I will dedicate this child to you all the days of his life. And she is intent on doing that. She leaves him before the Lord. And we saw the contrast between righteous Samuel and the ungodly sons of Eli. And that contrast bounced back and forth from 2 verse 11 uh, to what we covered at the end of last week in 2 verse 26. We want to pick up in 2.27 because we didn't finish all of this. We also want to see how this was tied with Hannah's prayer. As the Lord sends a man of God in 2.27, a man of God to Eli to rebuke him for his uh, sin and the sin of his children, he, he says, he says, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house. That's 227. 28. Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And I did not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the son of Israel. Did I not give? This is what God has done for the family of, Le family of Eli and the tribe of Levi. It is God revealed himself to Aaron in the land, to Aaron and Moses who were both Levites when they were in Egypt. Uh, you see that in verse 27. And God, God could have chosen any tribe to be priests. But he chose the Levites. He chose the Levites and some of their responsibilities were to go up to his altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod. These were their responsibilities and these were their privileges. Look at the position that God has put the Levites in. We need to constantly remind ourselves that being servants of God is a high calling and a high honor that none of us deserve. None of us deserve. And we should be in appreciation anything for God lets us to do in His service, in His call. And verses 27 and 28 are emphasizing that. All that God had done for the people. And he said in verse 29, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Now 29 goes back to 2 verses 12 through 17 where Eli's sons took of the sacrifice whatever they wanted. They took whatever they wanted. And here what you find in this case, Eli is rebuked because you honor your sons above me. And you have made yourselves heavy. You've made yourself fat with these offerings. In verse, verse 30, God said, I will say, um, therefore the Lord God declares, I, in, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. God had chosen this family within the tribe of Levi that they would be priests because of their dishonor to the service of God. That honor is going to go to another line from the tribe of Levi. Those who honor me, I will honor, God says. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Just throw this in if you are interested 
in more of the context of this. In 1 Samuel uh, 2.30, the text says, Those who honor me, I will honor. That, that, That line plays a part from this verse in the movie Chariots of Fire where uh, Eric Little is given that verse before he runs uh, his race. It, it's a very, uh, a very spiritual message that is being conveyed right there in that text, but, or that movie. But I'm not going to elaborate, but I could. Uh, and if you want to ask afterwards, uh, feel free to. But remember Hannah's prayer in Hannah's prayer in 2 verses 1 through 10, she stated that God brings down the mighty and God strengthens the feeble in verse 4. In verse 5, the full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. And I want you to see how this is fulfilled in these words. In verse 31, Behold, days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so there will not be an old man in your house. God is going to break the bows of the mighty. He's going to break the bows of the mighty. I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house. Verse 31 says, what's an example of God making weak the mighty? What's about to happen to Eli's house? Eli's sons were bullies. They used their position as priests to get whatever they wanted and God is about to break them down and God is about to make them weak. Also, the statement was made in Hannah's prayer in 2 verse 5 that those who were full hire themselves out for bread. We have seen just a moment ago that Eli made himself heavy with all the sacrifices that were offered. But look at verse 36. In chapter 2 verse 36, it will come about that everyone who is left in your house shall come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say please assign me to one of the priest's office so that I may eat a piece of bread. The priests who were using their position to take food that didn't belong to them are going to be hungry and are going to have to hire themselves out for bread. So God is fulfilling his words to humble the exalted And to exalt the humble. The sign of this in verse 34 is that Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day. We may get there today. If we don't today, Lord willing, we will on Wednesday night. But Hophni and Phinehas will die in one day. But in verse 35, God will raise up for himself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my soul and I will build him an enduring house and he shall walk before my anointed always. Now, those promises in 1 Samuel 2.35 that were made to priests. 1 Samuel 2.35 that are made to priests are very similar to the promises made in 2 Samuel 7 Verses 8 through 16 to the kings. I will make him an enduring house. David is described as a man after God's own heart. Here the priest does according to what's in my heart and my soul. And uh, I'm going to raise up myself a faithful priest. Did, Did any of you have an idea about who that faithful priest would be? Because I think there are several right answers to that question. David's got a thought. Okay. Well, I think the most immediate ones. 
Okay, I think you're right. I think immediately Samuel is an answer. And um, then, after Samuel, you're going to have, who is a high priest, or or, excuse me, a priest who becomes a priest in the days of David, and um, he and Abiathar are so faithful. Do you remember the name? Zadok, or Zadok. And eventually Jesus. Now, um, have a couple of former college students here. Uh, Jordan and Shayla today and I'm just trying to bring you back to good memories where I used to draw on the board this line that gets further and further apart to show there are levels of fulfillment. There are levels of fulfillment. I think this promise of God in 1 Samuel 2 verse 35 to raise up a faithful priest as David worded well just a moment ago, it has a more immediate fulfillment in Samuel. It has a fulfillment in Zadok and his line of priests. But always, or just most always, when I draw a picture like this, it is going to find a deeper and richer fulfillment in Jesus. Now I know that Jesus was not of the line of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. But still, this faithful priest foreshadows a more faithful priest. This faithful priest is said to have an enduring house. Jesus has a priesthood that lasts forever. Now, I just wanted to summarize that because there's some details there we could get lost in. But, but, and feel free if you've got a question about it or a comment. Robert's anxious to carry the mic. Sarah looks like she's doing it. I'm just thinking, uh, prophet priest king and a prophet in this case would have been Moses. Reason a prophet like Moses would be something similar. Yes, same kind of thing that if you raise up a prophet like Moses, Moses, of course, is a prototypical prophet. Then you have in the Old Testament a line of prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but ultimately in Jesus. All of these great characters and roles in the Old Testament ultimately merge in Him. Ultimately, the pictures come together in Christ. Anything else? Any other thought? Okay, let's go into three. And um, I love this section. It is very simple, and yet it, it's very profound. The boy Samuel, 3.1 tells us, was ministering before the Lord. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. It happened at that time that Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyes had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. The ark, the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, here I am. You called for me. And he said, I did not call. Lie down again. He went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am. For you called for me. And he did not answer. And he answered, I did not call my son, lie down. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be. If he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. 
This was a time when visions are rare. So Samuel is going to be a prophet as well. Samuel is going to be raised up as a prophet. He's one of those in that line that Sarah mentioned just a moment ago. But the Bible tells us in 1, 3 verse 1, visions were rare. It wasn't often the Lord was speaking to prophets at that time. That is usually viewed as a judgment. When the Lord is not speaking frequently to His people, it is often because His people are not listening to Him. And you see examples of that in Psalm 74 verse 9, in Lamentations 2 and verse 19. Visions were rare. And the Lord is going to bring judgment. The Lord is going to bring, the Lord is bringing a judgment by not speaking frequently. And the Bible tells us Samuel's, Eli's eyes were dim. We're going to come back to that. And, and Isaiah asked a question about that. But we want to come back to that a little bit later. His eyes are dim. The lamp of God hasn't gone out. And there's a voice that speaks. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel thinks the voice is Eli. And he runs to him. And Eli says, I I didn't call for you. This happens three times until Eli realizes that the Lord is calling him. And he says, the next time this happens, Sam, you just say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Now, beautiful account, uh, but I want you to notice something. Look at 3-7. The Bible says Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. He did not know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. Look back at 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12, I should say. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Okay? Uh, That passage is talking about Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And it said... They did not know the Lord. Do those phrases mean the same thing? Okay. I see a couple of people shaking their head. No, why don't you say that? David. The phrases are the same except for one word. Eli's sons did not know the Lord. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. He's going to. They never will. But also, I would say that that's a key difference in what David said is right. But I want you to also see Look back at 1 Samuel 3, 7. Sometimes the, the second phrase explains the first phrase. The Bible says Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. In Eli's son's case, they were just rebellious and sinful This uses the term know the Lord in the sense that the word of the prophet had not been revealed to him. He did not know the Lord nor had the word of the Lord been revealed to him. So same phrases except for that one word yet, but yet they are used much differently. So Samuel lies down and Samuel is going to say this, speak Lord for your servant is listening. And what is the first message? What's the first message that God's going to give Samuel as a prophet? You can shout it out. 
do for who? Eli. Eli has been good to him. Eli has cared for him. Eli has just addressed him as my son. Go lie down. And Samuel is attentive to his needs and very concerned about him. And it is a heavy message, no doubt, that God gives to Samuel. In two verse, in three verse eleven, three verse eleven, the Lord said to Samuel, "Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of every one who hears it will tingle." In that day, I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Okay. Now, looking at this particular text, the Bible says um, that the sons brought a curse on themselves. That is 1 Samuel 3, verse 13. They brought a curse on themselves. Now, this word curse was used uh, back in chapter um, 2, verse 30. 2, verse 30, those who despise me will be likely a seed. It is the same root word. Now, what, I want to make a point of this to see the connection. In 2.30, this is how they have treated God and this is how the Lord will treat them. Because they have Curse God or likely see God, God is going to send a curse upon them. Here again, it refers in, in, in 3 verse 13, they brought a curse on themselves. It refers to the same things, how they have treated God and how God is going to treat them. But there's a statement there. There's a statement there in verse 13. Uh, they have brought a curse on themselves. Um, there is a, it says, Eli did not restrain them. He did not rebuke them. Jim is usually used in the Old Testament to talk about eyesight. It's used, for example, when the Bible tells us Isaac's eyes were dim in Genesis 27. He couldn't see. Now, does that help you at all with a question that was asked? In question three, Isaiah asked, what's the spiritual connotation of Eli's blindness in verse two? Some of you are getting the answer, I'm sure, but it may be hard to formulate it in specific words. This is what I would say. Okay, we got nine volunteers that she wants to say. It seems like he turned his eyes away from seeing what they were doing and their wrong doing and allowed them to go on their way against God without the rebuke of the the trying to turn them back as 
statement but in this context with the fact that these words come that words that indicate blindness are referring to his relationship with his children in a spiritual message too it's a spiritual message and their physical blindness is a picture of a spiritual message and I'll tell you I have to go back and look at but I'm not so sure that may not be a point in Genesis 27 as well with Isaac. Because Isaac is determining to bless Esau, even though Jacob was the one that was sent by God to receive the greater blessing. I'm not saying Jacob and Rachel are right. Uh, they're, or Jacob and Rebecca are right. They're wrong too. Yeah, physical blindness is something that we don't generally bring upon ourselves. But spiritual Yes. We choose to ignore the evidence. Just like Eli, I believe, chose to, chose to ignore what his sons were doing. And so there's a big difference. But it shows why Eli would be held responsible. Yes. And, and exactly right. Exactly right. And if you're, we choose spiritual blindness when we don't usually physical blindness. I, and you know, as we know, apparently, he said something to his sons about their sin, but apparently his action was very mild compared to what it should have been. And we see that in this passage. Bob? We mentioned the concept of turning their eyes away from uh, uh, Eli, turned his eyes away from sons were doing. Uh, they've been doing it for a long time, and it's not until much later that he finally says something to them. Yeah, it seems like that. To, make, to the interesting, Eli and his sons turned their eyes away from God. And we're going to see here in a little bit, God is turning his eyes away from him, them, and his house. Yes. Yes, very much so. Uh, God is turning his vision away from them. But, but you're exactly, it, it may have gone on a long time before he says anything, like you say. And that may have been too little, too late, um, Robert. And Robert, you are getting a workout here this morning as you're running uh, to and fro. And, um, but Isaiah is something. Just before we leave that, while Eli is immersed in permanent darkness, Samuel has the lamp of God burning beside his bed. Yes, that, that, that's a key. The, the, in, in, three, in 3 2, it says before, excuse me, 3 3, the lamp of God had gone out. And, 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 and like David is to say, it did not go out. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> They were not to be important sometimes. And the lamp of God had not gone out, but the point is, lamp and light is often a metaphor for God's, God's using someone and to show the light, spread light. And I think that God, the light hadn't gone out, and God's about to make this light clear in Samuel. But, but what is the appropriateness? I want you to think about this. In verse 14, the iniquity of Eli's house will not be atoned for by sacrifice and offering. What is so appropriate about that, Sarah? Because they had been, because they had been disregarding and treating with contempt the sacrifices that were brought to the temple. His family had been doing that, and so yeah. 
They disrespected the sacrifices in 212 through 17. They used it as a way of personal enrichment. And yet, and so, their sacrifices aren't going to accomplish anything before God. They're experiencing the consequences of their sin. And I want to tell you, any time when the consequences of sin come home to us, the pleasures of sin are quickly forgotten. And so we need to look beyond the immediate pleasure sin brings to the long-term consequences that sin brings. Yes, there's some connection there, David. I think in in that passage too, there may be the there may have been the temptation for some of these who were persecuted for their Christian faith to turn back to their Jewish roots, and there's not going to be any salvation in that. So, but yes, there is a Hebrews ten twenty six does provide to some degree a parallel, but there's the added dimension to it, right, right there. And, and two, to make that clear, just that if they reject Jesus, the sacrifices of Judaism will accomplish nothing at that point. I think in verse 14 there, where it says, Eli's shall not be atoned for the sacrifice sacrifice offered forever, goes back to your question about Eli's sons, they did not know the Lord, and Samuel, who did not know the Lord yet. The thing is, Eli's sons didn't care one bit about the Lord and what he had to say. And that they knew absolutely nothing about him. And so their sins won't be atoned by the Lord by sacrifices and by offerings forever. So because they just walk away. And that's the difference in Samuel did not know the Lord because the very first verse starts out that he was ministering to God. He was ministering. So he knew him. It's just that he had not appeared to him yet and told him anything. So he hadn't come face to face with him. But he knew him. He knew who he was. He needed to minister and serve him. Yes, you're right. He knew the Lord in the sense of walking with the Lord, but this is his beginning as a prophet. This is his beginning as a prophet of God. Uh, I think uh, one of the greatest things I read in this is how patient God is with even the most disrespectful sin. Yeah. Uh, he gave them a lot of time to rectify it, and they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And, uh, and even then, he gave him a warning. Uh, yes. He gave the father a warning because he usually gives a warning before he brings the hammer down. And, uh, and they still didn't give the warning. His patience is amazing. Yes. We don't know how much time had elapsed from this section in 1 Samuel 2 when this man of God had, brought, had, had pronounced judgment. And however much time there was, it could have been short, it could have been long, but however much time, he makes no correction, it doesn't seem. He doesn't seem to do anything beyond that. But you think about this situation. Here is Samuel, a young man who has virtually, is in effect been raised by Eli. And his first task as a prophet, the first revelation God gives him is, I'm going to bring judgment on the house of Eli. Would that be a message that you would have liked to hear or would have liked to deliver? I mean, we know the answer to that. We, it's difficult sometimes to pronounce judgment upon people in estranged relationships much less people that we are close to. But yet, look at verse 15. Samuel lay down until morning, 
Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. I understand that. Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. It's the fifth time he's used that expression in this chapter. Here I am. And he said, what is the word that you spoke, that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May the Lord do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the words he spoke to you. Let me say this in Eli's defense. Eli still wants to hear what the Lord has to say. Maybe he had a sneaking suspicion that this word was about him and about his house. He wants to know it. He wants to know it. When he sees Samuel's reluctance, he places a curse upon Samuel. If Samuel doesn't tell him everything, the Lord says. And then when Samuel tells him everything, in verse 18, Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. He said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, I, I told you recently of an illustration. Of a lady that was in a congregation in Florida where we preached. Often on Fridays, she would give some kind of Facebook post. I think she only posted that day. And usually it was silly and, and uh, you know, just something simple from life. And she would end it with, God is good. But I was anxious to look one Friday. Because she just found out her cancer would come back. And that there was really nothing much they could do. And she posted all that she found out. And she still concluded it with, God is good. God is always good. But it's harder to say that in the midst of the gloom than it is the bright daylight. And it is easier to say it is the Lord. Let him do what's good in his sight when it is a promise of blessing than when it's a statement of judgment. But Eli, to his credit, does that. I want to tell you, I know Eli has his faults, and Eli does wrong, and I am not setting out to defend any of those faults. But I do hope from some of these good things that we see in Eli, his willingness to submit to the Lord, his concern in the next chapter for the ark of God. I hope that he was right with the Lord when he passed away. I, I, I can't know that. The Bible isn't given to us to help us know somebody's eternal condition. It is given to us with information to instruct us. But this becomes this charge that was given to Samuel about announcing judgment on Eli's house. This is the beginning of Samuel as a prophet. In verse 19, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. And all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then the first phrase of verse of chapter 4 probably belongs better with 3. Thus the word of the Lord came to all Israel. So Samuel is growing. And none of his words fail. All of his words come true. That's the sign of a true prophet, according to Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 and 21. And all the people 
from Dan in the far north to Beersheba in the south, they know that Samuel is established as a prophet of God. Now, going back to David's point earlier, we had that. He said that Samuel was the initial fulfillment of this statement that God would raise up a faithful priest. The same word translated faithful in chapter 2 and verse 35, that same word is used here. That same root word is used in 3 and verse 20 when Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of God or established as a prophet of God. Samuel is faithful in his role as a prophet. The Lord speaks to Samuel and Samuel in turn speaks to the people. Now, can you tell us right there real quick? Sarah? Sometimes great excitement can cause us not to sleep. And he has received a revelation from God. And sometimes a a difficult task can cause us not to sleep. And he faces both. So probably doesn't. Isaiah has a question, something up here. We want to try to give a little bit into chapter 4 in just a moment. I think the connection between Jeremiah 19.3, particularly that Jeremiah announces doom on God's house uh, and this passage. The passage is 1 Samuel 3.11. The ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And uh, because, because Jeremiah has pronounced judgment on this temple, on the temple of his day, like the temple of Shiloh, that has caused... Um, yeah, there's a connection there, obviously, I think, be made. Okay, let me go into chapter 4 a little bit. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. But the Bible tells us that the Philistines and Israelites prepare for battle. The first battle, in verse 2, Israel loses 4,000 men. They lose 4,000 men. Then the elders ask in verse 3, the elders of Israel ask, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Okay? Now, why has the Lord defeated us? That's a good question, isn't it? But it appears to me they're not really looking for an answer. Where do they have to go for an obvious answer to that question? You shout it out. Samuel. He's saying everything. All Israel knows from David and Beersheba. He's established as a prophet. Why not not ask him? Let's say, what does the Lord tell us about this? Instead, they suggest, let's take the Ark of a Covenant in the back. Now, um, in the old Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, movie, the army that takes the ark in front of them is invincible. Well, no, it's not. And you'll see it in this particular section. But the ark of the covenant, was it wrong to take it into battle? Was it wrong to take the ark into battle? 
Uh, let me give you a few verses that seem to indicate that they did take it before them in the Bible. In Numbers 10, 33 through 36, it led them in their march to the wilderness. In Joshua 6, they used it when they marched around the city of Jericho and eventually fought Jericho. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 11, in the time of David, they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't that it was wrong to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle, but they are treating the Ark of the Covenant like a lucky rabbit's foot, thinking that possession of the Ark is a magic tool to make your troubles disappear. Why has the Lord defeated us? And their solution is, let's bring the ark with us. And the ones that are carrying the ark, in verse 4, look at this, the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, Phinehas, were with the ark of the covenant. These are the last two men that you want to be with the ark of the covenant. If you're interested in getting God's favor. But, but you see, they're treating it like a lucky rabbit. The, the Ark of the Covenant was profound. It was profound, but they must have a relationship with the God who is the God of the Ark. Exactly. And this is not the only time that a battle was lost because the uh, people in the battle chose to lean upon themselves instead of inquiring of God. And, well, and so that's a failure on their part. Of course, the way to inquire God here was through the sin. And they didn't. They chose of their own. This is what we're going to do. God, I don't know what He wants. Yeah. Exactly. As someone put in the comments the other day on our reading of Joshua 9, um, if we don't take, ask the Lord's guidance, we're going the wrong direction. And you're exactly right. They don't ask the Lord's guidance, they don't ask the Lord's direction, and it brings disaster. They come up with their own plan and their own wisdom. Well, when they bring the Ark of the Covenant, all the Hebrews start shouting. Oh, they're celebrating. The Philistines hear the shouting and they think, what's going on? And apparently they find out that they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle. Now look at verses 7 and 8. 7 and 8. The Philistines were afraid for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. In verse 8, the, the Philistines seem to think that the Israelites are polytheists like themselves. These mighty gods. They are not completely accurate as theologians nor as historians. They said the Lord smote them with plagues. The Lord smote the Egyptians with plagues in the wilderness. But do you see something? What God did with Egypt, which may have been 300, 350 years before, is still known and still talked about among the nations. What God did with killing, with, with the plagues on Egypt and, and drowning the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, is still being told. And they fear because the same thing will happen to them. But in verse 9, some of their men, we're, we're, we're shown the conversation of the Philistines. In verse 9, take courage, be men, O Philistine, or you'll become slaves to the Hebrews as they've been slaves to you. Be men and fight. And the Philistines killed 30,000 Israelites that day. But, in verse 11, Hophni and Phinehas die. Remember back in 234, proof that all this judgment is going to come against the house of Eli, 234, is Hophni and Phinehas are going to die 
on the same day. And they die in 411 on the same day. The house of Eli is beginning to experience the judgment of God. Thank you for your comments and your ideas and listening. And Lord willing, we'll pick up on Wednesday night at um, 412. In, in, I, I Thank you, Johnny. Thank you, Johnny. Let's see if we can do chapter 4 in 30 seconds. <laughs> Jordan. Okay. I had a, a thought, too. Yeah. So, it's also kind of a trap that Christians loosely use. We want to claim the name Christian. We want to wear crosses and stuff like that. But we don't want to do anything he says or obey. I think it's the same. The same kind. Now, sometimes that may be, sometimes that cross may illustrate. So sometimes we just want to wear it into battle and not really yeah. do anything he says. You're right. You're right. So I, I agree with you, and I think you got a point. Yeah. Right. Uh, also, you Am I teaching on Wednesday? Okay, you're still recording here.